Coming up on this week's show, one of the most anticipated remakes ever is finally coming. It's not all about the Pentiums anymore. And we get the story of 3D construction kit with Paul Gregory. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our incredible friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their titles, definitely worth checking out, is Game Boy The Box Art Collection. They've brought together over 100 titles, the box art photography screenshots and expert commentary as well, celebrating Nintendo's monochrome marvel. So if you want to get that book and the rest of their retro gaming collection, you can see them at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 345, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And great to have you joining us for another hour-ish of retro ramblings, where of course every weekend we bring you up to speed on all the big headlines from the world of retro from over the last seven days. And we bring you a veteran of the industry on for an interview in the second half of the podcast. Now every week, of course, we talk about remakes of classic video games, new titles that are coming out, games that we played growing up. But here's a question for you, lads. Have you ever tried to make your own video game? I tried to make a point and click once. It was not very good at all. I think it its main aims and focus were walking around the streets, talking to tramps and... Uh, yeah, <laughs> it didn't work You've talked about well. this before, actually, haven't yeah. you? <laughs> one day I'm going to dig the disc out. I tried to make one when I was about 14, 15 on RPG Maker because I was obsessed with JRPGs. Um, spent weeks and weeks and weeks making it, but then to play it and it'd be about an hour long, which I guess is pretty good going, but I, if, if I remember rightly, it was just a really straightforward RPG. You have Hardly this idea that yeah. you know, <laughs> you're going to do a whole game in a day. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to make the best game ever in a day. You realise it takes so long. Yeah. yeah. See, I tried doing a... The first thing I did was a typing adventure game with my friend Gary when we were at school. We tried to do that on the BBC Micros in Basic. And then, obviously, adventure games are very complicated to make because you've got to have different options for the player and the story arc can change. So it completely fell apart and we never got around to finishing that. I did make a little shoot-em-up game, though, in shoot-em-up construction kit with my brother. I remember doing that on the Amiga. Um, and then the, the topic of today's show, I remember playing with a bit at school, actually, and that was... 3D construction kit. Now, weirdly, I remember my IT teacher bringing in a disc of it, and we used it for a lesson on the Acorn Archimedes, which obviously, you know, being a, a very educationally focused machine, I was quite interested to play with this piece of software that I'd read about in Amiga format and stuff like that. Later got a cover disc demo of it as well, I remember. But I think it just, packages like that, these kind of construction kits and JRPG makers, stuff like that, they just allow people like us who haven't really got much programming knowledge to be able to make our own games. And that was such a big deal back in the day. Yeah, so like 3D construction kit is uh, the subject of this week's interview with Paul Gregory, who's a programmer from Incentive Software, who were the guys behind it. And they created this um, engine called the Freescape engine. Now, you might remember such amazing games as Castle Master as well. Mm. Uh, that was also run on the engine, and um, 3D Construction Kit was insane. I remember trying to make uh, the city center in my um, kind of town, and I was like looking at areas of it and stuff, and I think I could only make a small area of it, but the 
kind of usability and uh, ease of use uh, for 3D construction kit was amazing like for for back then and it came out for so many systems like can you believe it it was out for the uh, spectrum as well so mm. you know you could create 3D environments on the spectrum uh, which was pretty insane and it works so efficiently as well um I think with the limited power and kind of limited memory that you had being able to construct these 3D worlds or objects was just um insane and uh i i absolutely love this interview so paul he worked for incentive software and that they were the folks behind it and when we we're doing some research for this as well you actually found a website didn't you dedicated to 3d construction kit games and there's so many you can download and people are still making them today yeah those that's games for like the commodore 64 as well which was a huge system for it um there, there's ones for the plus four there's like the the whole thing about 3D Construction Kit was that it was customizable. So you could mm. change the menus, you could add your own sounds in in 3D Construction Kit 2 as well. And uh, people created some amazing titles with that. Uh, yeah, I think it was an amazing piece of software. And it was like a game engine out there when, to be honest, not that many game engines were out there. Like people would release individual mm. games that would just yeah. do stuff, but there wouldn't be a a unified engine on lots of different platforms. And I remember using it on, like I said, the, the Acorn Archimedes and that demo I had on the Amiga. And the fact that it was all drag and drop as well, it meant that you didn't really need, you know, any programming knowledge to make your own 3D worlds. And today, I mean, you know, with the rise of the metaverse and virtual reality, it's, it seems very on trend now, but obviously they were doing this like 30 years ago. Yeah. I think in America it was actually released as, wasn't it virtual reality? Yeah, Virtual Reality Studio, that was the one. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was so ahead of its time. And I found a lot of like 3D programs were really intimidating back then. When you tried to pick them up, it, it felt like, you know, you had to have an understanding of like complex maths or you had to know about like rendering and stuff like that, where this was just like pick up objects, stretch objects, fly around the space, you know, walk around and you could add like triggers and stuff and really turn it into a puzzle or a, a game like that. Yeah, so if you uh, ever had any interest in making 3D worlds or you use 3D construction kit back in the day, such an interesting interview with this week's special guest, the legendary Paul Gregory. He's coming up on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, we have got lots of big news stories to get through this week. It's actually been quite a busy week for news, including, we need to talk about this, Joe's dreams have come true. We're finally getting a proper official GoldenEye 007 remake. Yeah, this this was, this was big news for me. And, you know, we... Have you picked yourself up off the floor yet? Yeah? <laughs> <I picked laughs> my jaw off me, the ground. Joe, as well. I love, yeah. I love GoldenEye, you know. Yeah, this this was really, really cool. So a lot's been announced this weekend, uh, just gone. I mentioned on last week's show that it was Nintendo Direct. New mm. Zelda games, lots of new modern stuff, but a couple of retro Brits. But yeah, GoldenEye 007. 25 years in the making this has been and also uh weirdly really close to the 60th anniversary of the bond movies um kind of timed that really well but yeah it's going to be coming to xbox and to nintendo switch um but i don't know if you guys have seen interestingly each game's a different build apparently i don't know if you've read anything about that so they're both by rare which i love i'm so glad that rare are behind this because obviously they're behind the original but as it goes is the Switch version is a port of the N64 game, but obviously it's HD remaster and all that. And optimized and stuff. And, and optimized to, to, and to run well, yeah. Yeah, on the Switch. 
and it will include online multiplayer, whereas the Xbox version will have split-screen multiplayer, which is a must because it's GoldenEye, but it won't have online multiplayer, and essentially they're saying it's because they've rebuilt the game from the ground up. This this is They've completely rebuilt it. However, they've said... You know, it is true to go to Golden Eye. It's it's it is a remake. It plays the same and everything like that. Um, and they've they've confirmed that it's it's exactly the same, etc. But I just think that's really interesting that the Xbox version they've built from the ground up, but the Switch version is a is is a remaster. And I don't know if that's because if it's going to go on the virtual console, you know, on the N sixty four. That's what I think. I think the Switch probably has a better background in emulating m64 stuff and, and yeah running that even though previously when trying to run goldeneye that was it was always really tough to do because the way that goldeneye was built was you know it specifically did stuff for the n64 hardware that you know is really hard to emulate mm. and uh i think they've they've probably focused in and spent time on that code for the switch version but yeah. they've had to go with something like another engine probably unity or something like that for the um for the xbox version um but obviously copying it exactly and keeping it close to that original which is really great and you know this to me it's it's an own goal this yeah. this this should have like gone in years ago this, well they've tried, they've, they've uh, tried yeah so yeah. And, times, and yeah the fact that they're doing it well like mm. it would have been awful if a, if a glitchy called a golden eye came out you know and and this, well we haven't played it yet but i'm sure yeah. it'll be good. <laughs> and yeah I, and give I, it a chance ravi <laughs> and i think this is going to bring back that kind of cooperative golden eye multiplayer sitting there with your friends and uh, we definitely need to have a golden eye session on this. oh god yeah i think that's 100 percent on the cards when this comes out just a video an hour-long video of me battering you both on it we'll just oh yeah we'll you know, that's what the fans need um but yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, it's coming to Game Pass on Xbox as well. So if you've got Game Pass, it will be free on... Well, it's not free on there, but you know, you pay your monthly subscription, which is really, really cool. I think most Rare games do, because obviously they're, they're you know, they're, they're owned by Microsoft. I can't remember the story there, but mm, yeah, um, really, really excited about this. Have we got a... I'm not sure if we've got a uh, a, a date on it yet. It I'm says... Gonna... Um... No, I don't. I don't think there is one on here. Yeah, yeah. I think but, it's just yeah. a. It's coming. It's coming soon, kind mm. of thing. But it was also announced um, as part of kind of not the same package, but in in the same announcement for the Switch, also for the N sixty four. Just a quick mention: Pokemon Stadium, Mario Party, Pilot One sixty four, ten eighty snowboarding, Excite Bike sixty four, as well as GoldenEye. They're the N sixty four games that should coming out of the Switch soon, and then we're also getting GoldenEye, but not all those other games on the xbox which i think is really cool though yeah so i mean you know with with winter coming here in, in the uh, northern hemisphere good time to get your cozies on and uh, relive some of those memories so apparently it's going to be arriving soon yeah i love yeah, so. the fact that it's 4k as well and like yeah you know they they haven't done any changes on the characters like they've got a little trailer and uh, you've obviously got james bond going uh, uh, at the front um and he still looks like he's got that kind of chunk to him and that uh, squareness and stuff. And I really love that, you know, when when you shot them in a certain place, they react <laughs> and fall over. Yeah. <laughs> and I think all that is essential to the game, but yeah. having it in 4K is just going to make it I hope, so, uh, so Dr. Doak is, I hope Dr. Doak is still in there. Oh, he's got to be in there, right? <laughs> he's got to be. <laughs> so look out for that landing, hopefully any day now. Now, speaking of things from uh, 25 years ago, that um, unfortunately this one is no longer there anymore. Oh! 
Intel is finally retiring the Pentium. I, I imagine I, Weird I, Al is getting pretty upset over this. I guess I guess it's the Pentium name, right? It's uh, then it's still not yeah. rocking Pentium chips, are they? <laughs> well, they, they they still release CPUs apparently under the brand of Pentium. Not that I've seen any around for God about fifteen years, but apparently they have been making them um, and the Celeron line, which are their now entry level CPUs. Okay, so they've been putting Pentium chips into like their really low end. Well, like office or industry kind of stuff, I guess. Yeah. But it turns out that apparently they're having a bit of a restructure in 2023. And uh, Intel are now saying they're uh, they're getting rid of the Pentium brand after all this time, and the Celeron brand as well, actually. And they're just going to be replacing it with uh, something they're calling Intel Silicon. So... That's going to be the, the do, new brand. Do you remember the impact of Pentium? We we were Amiga users, yeah. and for us, that was the kind of absolute destruction of our machine. Every everybody just <laughs> dropped everything and went onto Pentium. From what I remember, what 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 are your memories, Dan? I remember kids at school talking about it because I remember when the four eight six machines started landing. That would have been about what ninety two ninety three. Like remember those kind of well. been around. Yeah, when they were getting pretty fast. And then I remember, yeah, I remember a kid at school telling me about this new CPU. Now, they're all like, I had a few friends at school who were PC users by then. I was still rocking my Amiga 1200. And they'd always be like, oh, you know, the, the PC's so much better now. We've got, you know, the 586 is coming out soon. Um, and that ended up obviously being the rebranded as the Pentium. But really, I mean, Pentium was kind of the the trademark of power back then, wasn't it? Yeah. If you, if you had a Pentium machine, it was a high-end rig. Yeah, and like, you know, it lasted for such a long period. So like, you know, I think you went up to Pentium 4, didn't you? And uh, that that seemed to be the really popular uh, kind of era that I remember. And it owes mm. a lot to gaming as well. So stuff like Half-Life wouldn't have happened without that. Uh, Serious Sam as well, I remember, was a, a big title on the Pentiums and uh, even even The Sims as well. Yeah, but there was also early titles like uh, Magic Carpet and stuff. And and for me, it was that real kind of step up where PC became that serious kind of gaming machine and it could could take on the consoles and uh, go a lot further than the consoles as well. I remember the Pentium being famous for obviously that um, that bug. What was it? Y2K or no? uh, No, this was... um, yeah, f- something to do with division. I remember, and actually, Intel recalled them all. And there are there are still a few of them out there. I think it was the um, yeah the sixty six megahertz version of it, and you could test it by doing some kind of calculation in Excel, and it would get it wrong if it was this specific Pentium version that had the bug in there as well. Um, although I think Microsoft kind of patched Excel so it would work properly on it after that. But there are some YouTube videos if you want to see it. It was like really, I think the first time that there'd ever been a full recall of a, of a CPU in the industry. And it was in uh, December 1994. And it cost Intel $475 million loss wow. to recover and replace them all. It was, so, uh, yeah. it was a real kind of mad time because all these PC brands were out there. There were so many PC brands and shops and stuff. And I do... Remember, like people's parents buying pe- Pentium setups, and suddenly you had this like powerful computer sitting in their house that was connected mm. to the internet that had CD-ROM, and you know before it was just like probably a word processor or something, 
And then everybody was like, right, I could do this. I could play these games on it. And it, you know, it really got a lot of people into PC gaming. Yeah. And I think particularly that time, that kind of early to mid nineties, I know hardcore PC gamers will be upgrading their rig like every two years at that stage. You know, you yeah, buy a, yeah. a 486 to play Doom properly. Then the Pentium came along. Oh, I want to play Quake now. So, you know, you buy a Pentium machine and then the 3D accelerators started coming out and everything. So it was a very expensive time to be a PC gamer <laughs> yeah. um, back in the 90s. But um, obviously the Pentium, just a legendary brand. Um, I was actually surprised it was still around in 2022, but um, Intel are finally retiring after uh, over 25 years of service. So uh, rest in peace, the Intel Pentium. And what about this? Memories of, uh, for me, sunny days at the seaside in Scarborough with my brother, playing Operation Wolf. What a game. That is, to me, one of the best arcade shooters ever. I remember going to Benidorm, good old Benidorm, when I was about nine or ten years old, and they had an Operation Wolf down in the bar. And I, I think it was about ten cents ago, because it was in Spain. And uh, <laughs> just playing it every night and completing it pretty much every single night and just being obsessed with it. And just mm. absolutely loved it, loved the Uzi, you know, the fixed Uzi on the game which looked like a real gun and just, <laughs> yeah. you know, being commando, being Arnold Schwarzenegger from commando, essentially being that one man army and absolutely loving it. But, um, it's not really been around for a while. Has it old? Uh, no, but it's coming back. It's coming back. It's coming back. So we've got operation wolf, um, operation wolf returns first mission, um, which is a remake of the 1987 version, um, which will be coming out once again, announced this weekend will be coming to the switch. Later this year, we've just got autumn this year. What do you think of the um, the look of it, Dan? The kind of artwork style of it? I, I mean, I've only seen a couple of screenshots of it so far. Um, I'm not sure if it's like a full video. There's, there's no, trailer, there's no trailer or anything. It's just screenshots by the looks of things so far. I think it, it kind of reminds awful. me. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it looks horrible. Well, again, it's kind of because it this is a remake of the original game, isn't it? And that yeah. was, a, it was one of the first on-rail shooter games, really. Yeah, yeah. Operation Wolf. So I think, you know, if they did this in like, you know, full modern 4K and everything, it might kind of take away a bit of the feel of the original game. Although this, to me, looks a bit like, you know, look at the buildings and everything. Kind of reminds me of like Call of Duty 4 on the Xbox kind of graphics. Mm, to me, it looks like a Flash game and really badly, cheaply done, like, the, the, the characters in it, they've got really thin legs, spindly legs, but huge shoulders. I don't know <laughs> what they're on. Some, they missed leg day. Yeah, some like... Uh, <laughs> Riding emus. <laughs> shoulder steroids or something. And um, they've got these really like small squashed in kind of heads. It does look really... And, I, and the on-screen I, I, menus don't look that good either. I, I've, I've I, also had a look at some of the screenshots, which are the animations between... So they've got like a little cartoon kind of um, that's going on between yeah. between some of the shots. And that kind of looks all right, kind of switchy. But uh, the main gameplay to me, I don't know what the hell they're aiming for. Because Operation Wolf, when I first saw it, it looked like a Schwarzenegger film. It had that kind of, they could have gone like 80s vibe, I think, you know what I mean? I think that's what they're trying to do personally. I'm torn whether I like the look of it or hate the look of it. Um, and I think that's what they're trying to do, that they're trying to play on the silliness of it. You know, I referenced Commando there, it, and, you know, rather you pointed out that essentially the bad guys in it and stuff and some of the characters are, like, hugely muscly, 
but with these yeah. like tiny skinny little legs you know which was the case you know back there i mean you know not to say Arnold Schwarzenegger skipped leg day or anything i'm sure he had absolutely <laughs> massive legs but wouldn't say that to his face yeah i wouldn't say that to his face but i think that's like the silly look they're going for you can obviously tell i agree it's it's not like triple a it's not the new call of duty I am a little bit worried because I, w- I was really excited for the House of the Dead remake, and then I, 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 I'll be honest, I didn't think that played very well. I think it was a bit clunky. It's uh, probably, and that is the same um, developers, actually. So it's microids who are behind this who did the House of the Dead. Is it the same remake? developers? I was yeah. going to say I was trying to find out, and the graphics, same studio, the graphics look a bit same. They look the same, and I wasn't, unfortunately, I'm usually quite a positive guy, but I wasn't very impressed with the House it's, of the Dead remake. It's probably triggered me a bit because I've seen remakes of stuff like Command and uh, No Cannon Fodder which yeah. kind of came out for the PC and stuff and looked like this kind of style and really just didn't have anything relating to the uh, old game in, in in my eyes. But um, yeah, maybe maybe it'll be different. Maybe it'll play different or yeah, maybe there'll be a It's more... hard to tell from screenshots in it. It's, yeah, it's yeah exactly. Like weird because yeah. I can see that they are going for like like the trucks and stuff in it. They're going for this like shadery modern look as well. So but then I'm just, I just look at it and it and it, it looks like a flash game to me. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's tough. It, it is a well, tough Well, have got a, a good recent track record in, you know, kind of reviving retro titles. They did that, um, you know, North and South. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remake that came yeah. out. They did um, Oddworld, New and Tasty. Uh, they're doing Flashback 2 at the moment. Uh, Beyond the Steel Sky came out through that studio too. So, yeah, I mean, they've got some kind of big IPs from the past that they're, they're bringing back. I think they've just done a new uh, Asterix game. And uh, now that you mentioned Beyond the Steel Sky, I remember first seeing the screenshots of that and thinking, uh, and then later on thinking, actually, yeah, this is quite... <laughs> so, you know, maybe it's just that it's so early or it needs a bit bit more polish, you know. Yeah, and I think especially with, with a game as famous as Operation Wolf, kind of, you know, yeah, that used to see in the original graphics. Totally, yeah. Seeing something else called that, it's always a bit of a... Yeah, handbrake turn kind of, isn't it? Like, oh, what? hang on a minute. But I mean, I think it's really cool that the the franchise is coming back. I'd love it if they do actually make this into a new arcade cabinet, though. How good would that oh, be? Oh, that would, that be, would cool, be very yeah. cool. That'd be really, really cool. I mean, it's coming out on like everything. So maybe, you know, it's coming out on Meta. Uh, it's coming out on Steam. Oh, wow. Virtual reality yeah. version of Yeah, yeah, that yeah. That would be good, actually. Um, and then <laughs> well, you don't have the spindly legs on Meta. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Your own legs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, PS4, PS5, Xbox One, Xbox Series X. So, you know, as a as a, as a Quest game, a Meta game, that might be pretty cool. Yeah, because to me, Operation Wolf, you need playing it with a controller. It just feels mm. weird. You need the guns, you know what I mean? And obviously in virtual reality... You've got your two kind of handsets, your controllers, which I think it would actually work quite well in that. Yeah, I think it'll, I think it'll work quite well on there. I'll come and play it at yours when you buy it, Dan, when you're drunk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, see if you get seasick. So, uh, yeah, Operation Wolf is back. So if you want to read more about that, I'll put that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, we've got some more news about this huge Atari 50 project to tell you about in just a minute. And, of course, our special guest, Paul Gregory, giving us the inside story on 3D Construction Kit. Before we do that... Let's take a quick moment to give a massive thank you to our sponsor, BetterHelp. Now, we love working with BetterHelp. And, you know, personally, us guys have all been big believers for many years that mental health is so important. Oh, God, 100%. And, you know, I, I, I'm I'm the resident retro hour mental health guy. I'd like to think I'm the guy who, you know, who, who tries to be quite open about it and stuff. 
You look after us all. I, I try to look after you guys. Um, and, you know, sometimes sometimes it's hard to talk to people about these things, but it, it massively, massively helps. And it massively helps with the likes of BetterHelp because it doesn't necessarily have to be over the phone. It can be by chat. It can be by text. You know, I think that's really, really fantastic if it's something that you're worried about. And sometimes it's really hard to focus on on the positive. And sometimes, you know, you end up focusing on on what the problem is. And that's something I've struggled with personally recently. I've gone through a lot of changes in the last couple of months, um, a lot of changes at home, a lot of changes with work and stuff like that. And sometimes you just sit there and you worry about the problems. But, you know, when you actually get to talk about these things and either, you know, even talk about it out loud or even just talk to, you know, somebody on text, it really, really helps change that mindset. And actually you start mm. thinking about the future and start thinking about the positive and the solutions of how that can happen. And better help is really, really good for that. Yeah. And I think, you know, they can help you become a better problem solver. So mm. I think, you know, we've all faced challenges in the last couple of years. I mean, this year, you know, I've had a big change. I changed my career this year. Yeah. My wife did the same as well. You know, it's, it's been a big change for, for a lot of us. And obviously the last couple of years, I mean, the whole world has changed really. So a lot of us have got, you know, problems that we need to solve. And a therapist can help you become a better problem solver, help you achieve your goals as well, no matter how big or small. So if you've ever thought of giving therapy a try, and I think that is one misconception. People think that therapy is only for like, you know, the rich and famous. But better help is actually a great option. Not only is it convenient, you can do it from home, it's accessible, but it's really affordable as well. And the whole thing is entirely online. So you can get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and you can switch at any time at all. So if you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. So why don't you visit this exclusive link and we'll give you 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. So that is betterhelp.com slash retro, betterhelp.com slash retro. And I'll put that in our show notes as well. And a big thank you to our friends at BetterHelp for their support of our show. Now, of course, one of the most famous companies from back in the day, the the OG video games companies, is celebrating a huge anniversary this year, Atari 50. Now, this is an incredible-looking package, actually, they're going to be bringing out very soon that has documentaries in there. It's got a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff as well, and also 103 classic Atari games that is going to be brought to modern platforms. Now, this is something we've been keeping an eye on, over the last couple of months as well. Um, They did announce originally it was going to be over 100 games, but it looks like now, ahead of the release on November 8th, there's been, um, I think this might be a bit of a leak actually, (laughs) because a European retailer put this list up over the weekend, and it turns out there is 103 games in here, spread across all of the you know various arcade cabinets, six different console libraries as well, some of them are reimagined, some of them are newly coded games and ports as well, and actually... It looks pretty good, but there are some glaring omissions in here as well. Now, this is quite interesting. It's an article on Ars Technica, and they're kind of talking about, you know, some of the big games from Atari's history that hasn't made this selection. For example, there's no Paperboy in here. And you might be thinking, you know, if you're celebrating 50 years of Atari, games like that have got to be in there, surely. But you remember that Atari was actually two different companies, wasn't it? Because in 1983... They sold the home division to Jetro Meal, who turned it into, you know, mainly a computer company. And then the uh, the arcade branch of it went to Warner Brothers. So that's the reason that really there are not many, actually any arcade titles after 1983 in this collection. So that's explained in here. Yeah, it's interesting to see the kind of omissions in this. But um, also just to highlight, like we've mentioned before, this is a wicked pack. Like, you know, Atari 50, 
for about £31. Mm. Pounds, and, you know, you can get over 100 games for it. And a lot of them haven't been released for years as well uh, for, for like a huge variety of platforms. There's seven different um, hardware platforms and exclusive interviews and stuff. So this is a wicked pack. Like um, maybe they're saving these for a second release, do you think? Or, or something afterwards? Or maybe they don't have the rights like you say, Dan. Maybe it's, I think it's a rights thing rather than a second mm. release. But it doesn't explain why there's no Alien versus Predator on the uh, Jaguar. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is a big glaring omission because of, you know, the Jaguar didn't have the best library, but that's highly regarded as one of the best games for it. I imagine, again, that will be getting the rights we need for both yeah. of those franchises. Because, you know, yeah. it's, it's two massive movie franchises there. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the standout game for the Jaguar games for me is probably Tempest 2000. Um, that's mm. meant to be a really good version of Tempest. But then the other ones, you know, is Atari Karts on there. But then it's just like Cybermorph, Fight for Your Life, Missile Command 3D. So, Have you ever played Cybermorph before? I haven't, but I've heard it's not as bad as the Angry Video <laughs> Game Nerd made out to it. Um, I mean, it's not as fun as like Star Fox, for example, but I, I actually have fun with Cybermorph. And the second one's probably the best version, which I've got on the, um, <laughs> probably the only good game that I've got on the CD unit on the, on the Jaguar. But actually, yeah, it's not as bad as people make out, I don't think. I think this is... Um... A pretty good achievement, actually, because a lot, if you think and look back at the video game companies now, so many rights have been sold off and companies have changed that who would have like the rights to over a hundred games, you know? Um, mm. I, th- I think that's pretty awesome that they've got that. And uh, yeah, I, I couldn't see like, you know, a, a, a Amiga or Acorn or some, some other kind of company having this much uh, stuff, maybe apart from. Nintendo, who really hold all that stuff close to their chest. Yeah, you know, Nintendo kind of put it out just kind of incrementally, don't they, on their on their platforms like they're doing now on the Switch with the the older libraries they put on there. Um, but one thing that really inspires a lot of confidence for me in this is the Digital Eclipse are working on this. Who did the um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Cowabunga collection recently? So they're going to be reimagining like six of the games as well. And I think, you know, based, I still haven't played the Cowabunga collection yet, but based on reviews I've seen of it in YouTube videos, it's actually been reviewed really well from the the videos I've seen. And they've got some good people on board. So uh, Mike Meeker, who we've had on the podcast before, is the uh, president as well, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was playing the Cowabunga collection only last night and the port of it feels perfect. I mean, I've only played the two arcade games so far, played them through and completed them both last night. And they both feel feel perfect and, you know, you can rewind them and, you know, save state and all that kind of stuff. So if it's, you know, some of the same people on board with this, I'm sure then it will be a hit. And what I think is really good is, I mean, I'd say as retro gamers, I don't know about you guys, I've probably played as many Atari 2600 games as I want to play. <laughs> you know, I've, they don't hold my attention all that well, if I'm honest, but a lot of the older Atari arcade games do. And when you get to stuff like the Lynx, I mean, they've got stuff in here like, you know, Scrapyard Dog, Turbo Sub Warbirds is going to be coming out as well. Super Asteroids and Missile Command. Then on the Jaguar, Atari Karts, which is kind is, of the Is there Chips Challenge? Chips Challenge isn't on the, oh. on the Atari Lynx list. Yeah. Again, I imagine because it was probably a different company made it and maybe they haven't got the rights. California Games um, as well. No, it's not on there either. But they're saying that they were really trying, apparently, to support the the Lynx 2 player Link play mode in the games, but they haven't been able to get it working, unfortunately. So it means that, you know, these games are not going to be two-player on the Lynx. But I, I always get the idea that there are probably 
a huge amount of retro gaming fans who have never really delved into the more obscure platforms like the Atari Jaguar and the Lynx, even though they've heard a lot about them. So it kind of opens these games up that previously were only playable on that hardware. So if you guys want to play Atari Karts, you can do it easily now. I hear and- you raving about Atari Karts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I don't want to hype it too much, by the way. And, <laughs> this, and this is why I'm, I mean, obviously you could just go emulate them. You know, I was going to throw it out there. But this is why I'm disappointed because I wanted that modern version. <laughs> you know, I wanted to play. Alien vs Predator on my Xbox Series X, like you know, you know I love that. You know I love my retro on you know new consoles and stuff. Um, but you know I can play Trevor Muckfer at least on the Atari Jaguar via my Xbox, so it's still pretty cool. You know I'm interested to find out because I've got Missile Command 3D as one of the Atari Jaguar games, which was the only Atari Jaguar game that supported the unreleased virtual reality headset. So I'm wondering, you know, if they release this on the on the PS5, is it going to support the PSVR? That would be very interesting. It would yeah, be very yeah, cool as well. I have my doubts. I feel like that's a lot of effort to put in for one game out of like 103. That would be amazing. Though. Yeah. And Tempest 2000, obviously Jeff Minter's, you know, I think my favourite version of Tempest. He did the, well, the one of the new one was pretty good. We played that at Play Expo once, didn't we? But yeah, that, you know, a lot of people kind of rave about that as one of the best Atari Jaguar games. So, yeah, it looks like it's going to be a really, really good collection and just the amount of extra bonus material they're putting in there. I think there's like an hour-long documentary that's going to be included with it too. So um, that's due to land on November 8th, and we'll bring you more news on that when we can. Now, there has been a big retro FPS revival in the last couple of years, and I remember us guys getting very excited when a, a game called Iron Fury was announced a couple of years ago. I don't know if you guys have played that. I downloaded that game. Um, Really enjoyed it. Kind of reminded me very much of those mid-90s PC shooters, definitely in the vein of something like um, Duke Nukem 3D. Yeah. The original Ion Fury game. The uh, build engine look, um, but kind of on steroids and with loads of extra effects and stuff. And it also reminded me of uh, Shadow Warrior as well, which which is one of those, but a bit more pixely. Yeah, yeah it, great fun to play that game. It reminded me of like a step up from, I don't want to, maybe from Blood, you know, like kind of Doom and Blood, but like I think yeah. Shadow Warrior and, and Duke Nukem 3D are like really good comparable, you know, there. We actually, we did cover the show, we did cover the uh, the game when it came out and it did look really, really good. But I love what they've done with the sequel that they've just announced, Phantom Fury. I really, really... Now, was this another one that was announced at Nintendo Direct? It was. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> what a week. What a week. Um, so it, it isn't just for the Switch. It's coming out PlayStation 5, Xbox, uh, PC, Steam, etc. Um, and it's going to be an early 2023 release. It's a direct sequel to Ion Fury, so it continues the story. But I absolutely love what they've done with the aesthetic and look of the game. So I thought it was going to just be more of the same. But essentially what they've done is they've they've kind of taken the graphics into the next generation after that mid nineties generation. And the graphics are now similar to, I kind of associate them with like half life, the original time splitters, maybe a little bit like golden eye, but a bit better, you know, that kind of early, like late nineties, early two thousands look. And I think they've nailed it. It could have come out in 1999, this game. Yeah. I I, I think also it looks Xboxy. Um, yeah. Xbox original, mm. yeah. uh, Halo kind of that that kind of look. Um, you yeah. know, uh, well, that, still ninety nine to two thousand and three kind yeah. of look, isn't it? Yeah, kind of like it's just edging on a little bit of Bioshock, but not that kind of vintage look. But you know, just the FPS style. Now you mentioned Halo there as well, and looking at some of the 
screenshots on the Nintendo Life article that I put in our show notes. Yeah, some of the weapons look straight out of Halo, don't they? Yeah, they do. Um, it, it, it reminds me of like like a crossover of like the weapons anyway. Halo, Turok, Time Splitters, just really in that kind of vein of like... Or Unreal Tournament. That's Unreal Tournament, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like, you know, when it's got the jungle sections, it looks well... Uh, Unreal Tournament 2003, which was like a second version of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and it, it, it looks really good. And you know, I really need to play the first one. You know, you mentioned that you played it there, Dan. And I, I really got into, um, you know, like Doom and Doom clones about a year ago, playing through loads of. You them. were playing them all, weren't you? I was you? playing. I, remember, I was yeah. playing through all of them. Um, and I just never got around to Iron Fury. You know, before I, I played through like Shadow Warrior and stuff like that. And I just never got to Iron Fury. So maybe it's time for me to revisit that now. This has been announced and see what I think of it, maybe in time for Phantom Fury to come out and then play that one. Well, this game's coming out next year, 2023. Um, yeah, I love the fact as well that cause it's set a few years after the original um, with uh, Shelley Bombshell Harrison, um, now set in the full 3D world. You have to use a bionic arm in here as well. Uh, but I, I do love the fact that, like you said, they've kind of moved up a generation. So if the original game had to come out in, like, you know, 1996, mm. this is probably what the sequel would have looked like in 1999, 2000. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I reckon, you know, you hit the nail on the head there. The, if the original game and game came out in 96, then this one came out in 2000. Like, the look of it, like a really nice 2000, because obviously it's all HD um, and quite smooth and the frame rate and stuff looks really good. But yeah, I'm excited for this one. It's still kind of got some pixely shading in there, which is yeah. nice. Like, you look at stuff a bit closer, like the guns, they actually... They've kind of got that non-anti-aliased look. Yeah. Um, you know, like just a bit kind of chunky and edgy and like not every line is smooth in there, which is quite nice, actually. Yeah, I really like that, you know, style because obviously it's very purposeful, you know, and there's even a nice moment in the uh, in the trailer when you go up to a vending machine and, you know, all the text on the vending machine is like, it's all pixelated and unreadable which is what would happen, you know, kind of like in those early games, you know, I say early games, but that kind of like early sixth generation, that's what it would be like, like, you know. The like how they to... applied textures and stuff. Yeah, yeah, the textures look exactly, you know, like what they would have looked like and it, it makes it really nostalgic. It does make it, you know, it really takes you back to kind of like 20, 22 years ago. Before Christ, you know what? Actually, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm looking at the trailer now, and you know, there's bits in there. It kind of reminds me, in some ways, of the the Duke Nukem Forever kind of trailer, you know, from back in 2001. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. yeah, and I've just been reading that apparently Sherry Hall- Sherry Harrison was meant to be a character in Duke Nukem Forever that got dropped. So mm. there's definite nods to that in here. It reminds me of Serious um, Sam as well. So obviously Duke Nukem Forever came out and wasn't the, uh, I think I'm kind of understating things if I say it wasn't well received, which I don't think anything that was kind of you know in development for that long would be. But I, I think if, if the kind of, you know, 3D realms are involved in this, obviously. So if, if they're kind of making, you know, Duke Nukem as we, we wished it was, Duke Nukem Forever, then I think that is definitely a big selling point in this yeah, game. And if, and if you know, we're remember. mentioning all these FPSs that are totally different, that it all reminds us of. So they seem to yeah. have found that right kind of period and that right kind of frame of reference, which is really nice. Yeah, so it looks really good. That's going to be coming out next year. So if you want to check out the trailer, I'll put that and all the stories. I do every week. You don't have to Google around or anything. You'll find them all in your podcast app, or you can head and follow the links on our website at theretrohour.com. 
Now, we are going to get the story of the legendary 3D construction kit with this week's special guest, Paul Gregory. He'll be on the show in just a minute. Now, before we do that, let's just take a quick moment to give a big thank you to this week's sponsor, our friends at ExpressVPN. Now, what about this for an analogy? Are you a fan of Eminem, Ravi? Yeah, yeah. I used to love a bit of Slim Shady and uh, Dr. Dre back in the days. Well, watching Netflix without using ExpressVPN would be like buying tickets to go and see Eminem, but only being allowed to watch the opening act. Oh, that, that would be awful. Imagine that you, just, you get to see Vanilla Ice and not Eminem. <laughs> not that I think Vanilla Ice would ever open for Eminem, but you get the idea. Well, ExpressVPN, what they do is, and actually this is really good because I've been away in Spain this week, and using ExpressVPN on my phone meant that I could continue watching shows on Netflix that are only available in the UK. Because, you know, there are so many. I think there are around 90 different Netflix libraries around the world that due to licensing and region differences, they have specific libraries and shows that you can usually only watch in that region. So you're paying every month. I mean, I think I pay about 13 quid a month for Netflix, but you're not getting access to the entire library. But using ExpressVPN opens up the whole thing. Yeah, it basically allows you to unblock your content and it means that you can change your location online so even if you're like watching something in the uk and you want to watch it when you have gone on holiday or you want to watch something from another country which i've actually been doing which is pretty awesome because I've, I've watched so much netflix that i've kind of run out of content to watch and um, i've been using the us netflix and there's some exclusives on there that i absolutely love um, There's a load on the US one that we don't get here. Oh, yeah. So uh, I don't know if you've seen a film called This Is The End, which is absolutely awesome with Seth Rogen in it. And uh, it's kind of a really apocalyptic film, but also Taxi Driver, which is just an absolute classic. And, of course, all of you guys will love Knight Rider, the TV show with Michael Knight and Kit. Oh, classic. You can get that on the um, US Netflix and that is made much easier using ExpressVPN. And the thing about ExpressVPN is, it is dead easy to use as well, isn't it? It's so simple. I've got it installed on my phone. I just have it on my laptop. It's got blazing fast speeds, like really fast. You know, you can stream in HD. There's not any buffering, even though you're going from another country. It's uh, compatible with all your devices. So phones, laptops, your media consoles, smart TVs, and you can go to 94 different countries, which is amazing. You can gain thousands of shows, lots of content, not just Netflix as well. It works with other streaming services like iPlayer, YouTube, and much more. Yeah, so you're paying for these services already. Why don't you get the value for money that you deserve instead of just getting a fraction of their content? Get your money's worth. And actually, of course, we've got you an incredible offer. If you use our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash retro, make sure that you use that and you will get three months of ExpressVPN on top of a one-year plan for free. So that's expressvpn.com slash retro. I'll put that in our show notes as well. And a massive thank you to our mates at ExpressVPN for their support of our podcast. Now, just a quick heads up, if you were a patron of this show, you'd be getting a few extra news stories right about now. We do that every week for our patrons. Yeah, it, it kind of started off as, a, you know, we were going for a phase of the retro two hour and we had to cut a couple of stories. We, we already we are the retro in. two hour now. <laughs> yeah, we, we already are. to the retro, retro three hour. hour. And yeah. uh, we, we, we never really agreed on it, did we? Like, we, it was like we were, cut, we were having to cut the odd story and we were keeping them in for our Patreons. 
And uh, we just kind of kept doing it. And now it's become a thing where we now just give an extra, like, sometimes it's one, sometimes it's three extra stories, just to give that little bit back to say thank you, you know, to all of our supporters, really. Yeah, if you back us on Patreon, you get the normal podcast ad-free. We try and get it out early, you know, whenever we can most weeks. Um, you also get access to our second patrons-only podcast, The After Hours Show, that comes out every month as well. And, of course, at the end of the month, that is going to be our patrons hang out. This is where we all get together once a month, completely nerd out about all things retro, all things tech. So if you'd like to join the Retro Hour patron community, all the details are on our website at theretrohour.com. And if you can't join our Retro Hour patron as well, you can leave us a review, which would really help the show as well on uh, iTunes or on any of the stuff like Apple Podcasts. Yeah, they definitely help us get in front of new people as well. So anyway, you can support the show. Massively appreciated. Right, then next, we're going to get the story of classics like 3D Construction Kit with our special guest, incentive software legend Paul Gregory, is next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for the highlight of the show. When, of course, we welcome on a veteran of the industry to hear some stories about games, about products, about companies that we grew up hearing about, and products that we grew up using. So, and today we're going to be hearing some incredible stories from Incentive Software, which is a company we've not really covered all that much before, and of course, famous for so many incredible games and products, including 3D construction kits. Let's welcome on our special guest this week, Paul Gregory. How are you doing, Paul? Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, really appreciate you joining us. Now, before we get into kind of your time at Incentive and products like 3D Construction Kit, we also like to kind of go back to day one with our guests and kind of find out where your journey in the industry began. I mean, do you remember, you know, when you were young, when did you first see a video game then? When did you first experience it? So my my first exposure to, to video games would have been the, um, the, t- the plug into the TV Pong game. Um, that was popular back in the like the 70s, early 70s. Uh, Christmas present had about two or three games on it and a couple of controllers. Um, great fun. And that that followed shortly by my friend getting hold of an Atari 2600, and and that took precedent then because that was far better. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I can remember very clearly um, the 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 sort of lead up to getting my first home computer. It, it's very clear in my mind. I can remember the day it was at school in third or fourth year secondary school and my my maths technical drawing teacher uh, bought in a zx81 and held it up in front of the class and gave us the opportunity to to have a play during break time which i definitely took up and um and haven't looked back since really i i remember going back to my mum and dad and asking for one immediately (laughs) and got one the next weekend that lasted maybe six weeks, maybe a couple of months before I got uh, frustrated with the limitations of, of the ZX81 and its 1K memory and black and white screen and flickering and everything uh, and, and upgraded to a Spectrum 16K. How did you start programming then? Were you buying like uh, magazines and doing the typing listings like we all did? Yeah, that was that was definitely my first introduction. So basic programming, uh, typing in from Sinclair User and other such magazines with my mum uh unfortunately the uh the, ded- the uh dedicated person sitting sitting behind me reading out bite by bite while i typed it in um yeah really good really good fun and learn learn from that and i i, I wonder were you playing any like adventure titles on there because there was like lots of text adventures and stuff 
Yeah, I think a lot of the early type-ins in, in the magazines were text adventures because they were so simple to do and the graphics were so so difficult to achieve. So, yeah, I did, I did play a lot of text adventures um, back in those days, yeah. I don't know if you remember, there was a, um, a, a series of programming magazines by, I think it was Marshall Cavendish put them out, called Input. Um, yes. Yeah, and I remember following that, typing in a text adventure on, on the Commodore with my mum. And yeah, I think we, we typed in all parts of it, tried to run it right at the end. And it took us yeah. about six weeks to do, then it failed. It was obviously an error somewhere <laughs> in that code. <laughs> yeah, the, fu- the fun ones, were, the, the basic ones were okay because they sort of made sense when you were typing them in. And, and in, on the Spectrum in particular, you were sort of forced into typing in the right words because you didn't type in. Uh, you didn't type print, for example. You pressed P, and, and and the word came up. So making a mistake was very uh, was was less easy. But typing in the assembly programs out of the magazines was really interesting, which was just a huge array of of um, decimal bytes and getting every one of those right and having no idea if it didn't work at the end what which one was wrong. That was that was fun. Did you have much fun with um, 3D Monster Maze as well? Yes, on the ZX81. Yeah, that was one of the few games. That, and I was amazed by um, the flight simulator on the ZX81. Uh, I remember that blew my mind that you could actually do a flight simulator on such a limited machine. But yeah, very impressive. And there's those um, isometric games, um, stuff like Ant-Attack and Batman on the Spectrum as well. I mean, were you a fan of those? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Ant-Attack was was a real... Uh, eye-opener for me because it had the big scrolling area and, and what looked like 3D graphics, although they weren't. Um, it was it was quite a, a departure from the usual um, Manic Miners and Jet Set Willys. That was, that was quite fun. But um, for Isometric, I think my favourites had to be the um, ultimate play of the game Isometric, such as Sabre Wolf and Alienate and things like that. They were They were just so polished. When you started programming, um, do you remember kind of the first games that you made at home then? What kind of titles were you, uh, and genres of games were you making at home before you entered the industry professionally? So tinkering at home in basic, mainly before I before I got my hands dirty with Z80, it was things like overhead. I, I, I did a couple of overhead boxing games, that sort of thing, where you just had a, a very simple character that moved around and, and a, a couple of key presses to extend the fist. That was quite simple stuff. Uh, didn't get into 3D at, at all at that point. Not until not until I actually started work at Incentive. Well, let's talk about your move into the industry then. So, how did you get involved with Incentive Software? So that, that, that's another interesting one. So, I, as I say, I, I knew from an early early stage exactly what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, and and that really hasn't changed. So, I'm one of the fortunate people who who found a passion and and a career in that passion. I knew I wanted to be in computers from seeing that ZX81 and tinkering with it. I just didn't know whether I wanted to be in hardware or software. So I took a leap and went to a two-year course in electronics engineering at a local technical college. Um, a year in, realized I'd make, made the wrong decision, gone in the wrong direction. Uh, software was much more my thing. I, I sort of get programming much more than I do electronic signals and components. So I, le- I left after the first year and uh, wandered down to the uh, the job centre in Basingstoke, where I lived at the time. And on the board was a, a job posting for incentive for a, a, a computer assistant. Uh, I recognised the name straight away from Splat and Confusion. Uh, so jumped on that one quickly and got out to Tadley where I had an interview with Ian and, and started in the next couple of days. And do you remember much about the, the interview and what they had you working on when you when you first got there? I certainly remember the interview because it was 
at the point where the the first game from Freescape, the Driller uh, title, was probably around about 70% complete. It was demonstrable on in, in certain forms. And Ian was very, very excited about it. So the, most of the interview was spent with him uh, showing off what Freescape could do and what they'd achieved and, and sort of getting my feedback on it really more than anything. So, um, But that was really exciting to see that because, as I say, never seen anything 3D anywhere. So to see to see solid 3D in that form um, being shown on something like a Spectrum was just mind-blowing. Yeah, that was um, Incentives in-house engine, which uh, yeah. w- w- was really interesting. It was uh, uh, called Freescape, and that was like the first proprietary 3D engine. Um, h- how was that kind of developed then? So I think at the time it was it wasn't particularly common to create uh, what we now refer to as an engine. Um, it, it's the common way of developing games these days. But back then you, you basically created each game as an isolated uh, one-off effort. But um, Ian had this idea to spend a lot of time up front creating something that could be reused, uh, something quite powerful, uh, and creating an engine that was entirely data-driven. So he, he came up with the game idea for Driller and, and, and built that out uh, from, a, from a concept perspective. And uh, Chris Andrew, his brother, was brought on to, uh, to to take on the unenviable task of uh, of making the technology work around Ian's fanciful ideas. Which language is that programmed in then? Was it like pure assembly code? And uh, obviously it was on different platforms as well. Were there any tricks to speed it up and optimise it for each system? Yeah, it was written in raw Z80 assembly. That was the only way. Well, Z80 assembly on the Spectrum and the Amstrad machines, which is where it started its life, uh, and then was ported across to the Commodore 64 in 6502 by Stephen Northcott. It was developed by Chris. Uh, Yes, you do have to take into account a lot of uh, the tricks and techniques at the time, not only to, to increase the speed, but also to reduce the size of the engine and so on. There was a lot of really nasty... Uh, self-modifying code within the within the program so it would it would jump around based on various various conditions at points where it was drawing the polygons for example it would have to uh, it would have different routines for the different stipple patterns so if you if you remember in the in the engine you you had different shades for uh, for the different sides of the polygons to to, to give the 3d effect mm. So each of those patterns were coded in such a way that we we could make modifications to the assembly during runtime to leap in into the right place effectively without lots of branches and so on. So there was some really complex tricks going on in the assembly there to make it work as fast as it as it did. It, it was very ahead of its time, and um, you know many games companies didn't actually think of a, having an engine at that point. Um, was this kind of incentives plan to have an engine and update it and kind of upgrade it? Yeah, I think Ian was was smart enough to work out from the outset that it was going to take a lot of time and money to get to a point where we could release a game based on this 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 idea, this this technology. So it was paramount, really, from a financial perspective, to make sure that you could recoup that cost uh, by releasing more than one game out of it. So he had the idea of of building something, putting the work in and the, and the time and the effort and money in up front and then recruit, recouping it over time rather than um, re-engineering from the ground up each time. And as I say, I don't think many many other companies were doing the same, the same thing at the time. 
Well, a lot of kind of titles then where, you know, bedroom coders and, and people doing that. And I guess that enabled um, the kind of split from a programmer to a, a kind of video game designer. Exactly that, yeah. So the way that it was engineered, as I said, it being data-driven. So the the game itself was contained within a data file that, that had the objects that you see on screen, the, um, the behaviours written in the FCL behaviour language that was developed, all encoded within a single data file that gets loaded into the engine and run, meant that Chris and Steve could work on the game itself, the the code, the, the Z80 code behind the game, the loader, the sound, all the different bits and pieces. And at the same time, Ian could be in a completely separate place, working with the tools that were provided to him purely on the game design, on the logic, on the puzzles and all those sort of things. And he had the freedom to to make changes himself without having to go back to the programmers to make changes and recompile it and produce a new version and, and get it back to him. So the, the turnaround time on making changes and tweaks to the game and improving things was was much faster. And, and that allowed him to, to be much more creative. You know, it still blows my mind that this was running on systems like the the Spectrum and the, the Amstrad CPC. I mean, how hard was it to compress and get as much information to be displayed in like a 3D world on such limited hardware? That that was a huge challenge, absolutely. And and it's all down to the data formats that were designed. So rather than using, for example, for the position of an object, because each of the regions, so, so you had the sides of the moon in Driller, for example, is one region. It's a, it's a, a limited grid 3D grid space with limited coordinates. So rather than using three bytes for the X, Y, and Z, we would actually compress it down to uh, to one or two bytes using um, just the bits that were required to do it. And similar techniques were used throughout the entire data structure. So for simple shapes, you'd, you'd use um, compressed bit, uh, bit representations. You'd use flags in groups of eight to to control various things uh, rather than losing a byte you just lose a, a single a single um uh, a single bit use a single bit within there for, for for the purpose and within the fcl language itself as well the the commands and the byte codes that that make up the the virtual machine of the fcl language were very optimized to to maximize each individual bit within the data that was uh, that was created i was i was wondering um with the kind of cassette storage format as well, you had to, you know, to create bigger worlds, you had to have that real efficiency. So when we were developing it, it was developed largely on the Amstrad CPCs. So it, Chris would develop mostly on the CPC and Ian would create the game on another CPC, which meant we had access to the three inch discs. So that made it a lot, lot easier to work like that. I've heard that from a lot of people that actually, you know, developed spectrum titles on the amstrad and kind of move the code over because it was just a nice nicer machine to work on i guess physically that keyboard as well i imagine helped yeah and, and i think if i remember rightly i mean it's, it's all a bit blurry uh, it's a long time ago but if i remember rightly there was actually um peripherals that you could purchase and we did that you plugged into the amstrad that would allow you to connect directly to the spectrum so we mm. could assemble on the amstrad with all of its additional memory and, and, and disk facilities to a spectrum program that could then be dumped straight down to an actual spectrum to run so the 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 amstrads were the the workhorses of the development process well you mentioned driller um also known as space station oblivion um in america 
that was the the first title on Freescape with up and down looking abilities in the game too. I mean, was that considered a bit of a practice ground or, or a tech demo for the engine? I don't think it was necessarily that way around. I think Ian did have have the idea for the game and then worked with Chris to come up with the the best way to develop a, the technology to 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 make that game work. So it, it wasn't it wasn't so much a case of let's build Freescape and then let's create a game on it. It was more this is the game I want to build, let's build an engine and then we'll call it Freescape. I was wondering, going onto those different systems, porting the engine, did that make the process of porting games like much quicker? And porting the engine itself, was was that a, a bit of a challenge? Supporting between Amstrad and Spectrum was very simple because they're both based on Z80 cores, so the vast majority of the engine itself was common between the two. A lot of what you do in a 3D engine such as Freescape is is not specific to any particular platform. You do transforms between, you're transforming 3D objects in 3D space, doing rotations and um, and transformations and scaling operations in, in in 3D space. You're then transforming those points into 2D space through a projection matrix. Then you're having to um, scan down the resulting polygons um, the edges of the resulting polygons producing a list of horizontal lines to draw and then you draw those horizontal lines pixel by pixel it's only when you get down to the pixel by pixel part of the horizontal line draw that you get into machine specifics so within the code the z80 code those machine specific parts were isolated with just uh, if defs effectively in the assembly code that the assembler would compile in and out or out depending on which platform you were you were targeting obviously going to the the, the Commodore 64 and the 6502, that was a complete complete rewrite, obviously, uh, completely different architecture and different considerations as well. The C64 ran a slower clock speed and had some had some interesting features that we could, we could take advantage of. So each different system, like, um, say, the Amiga and stuff, you'd be adding in, like, extra functions with the Blitter and um, uh, specific stuff for those systems? Yeah, there wasn't a great deal we could take advantage of with the Blitter on the on the Amiga, unfortunately, because it was designed for 2D. I, I don't know if we did. I think we experimented with some ideas of hardware accelerating the horizontal line draw, but in the end, it just didn't work out. It's just not designed for that sort of thing. So I think it was pretty much still CPU bound, and that's why some people felt that on the 16-bit machines, it didn't go as fast as they expected it to. Would like accelerator cards help it and stuff? Because I know some titles were like limited, but um, you know, if you had a faster machine, uh, w- w- would it run better? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So there were various 680XO um, boards that you could plug into the Amiga that ran at uh, much faster speeds. And yes, because the machine, the, the the game itself was CPU bound, any speed increase at the CPU level would have a, a direct effect on the speed of the game so for example um modern emulators running the spectrum or the or the amiga version clocked up higher than normal would run really nice you know obviously you were doing 3d way ahead of everybody else um and by the time we got into the mid 90s i mean you know 3d was everywhere and a lot of companies fell by the wayside because they couldn't keep up with the demands of making 3d games i mean when you saw these um initial titles at you were doing incentive. I mean, did that kind of look like it was going to be the future of the industry? Did you get kind of an idea that 3D is where it was all heading? 
Yeah, I think we did. And that, that sort of led our, our decision to move to move towards Superscape and the, and the more advanced stuff that we did. Um, I think Ian had a very clear picture of, of where uh, more immersive 3D technologies was going to go. Unfortunately, I feel looking back, we were and his his vision was maybe a little bit too far ahead of the curve. The machines weren't capable of what we wanted to do, mm. uh, what we had in mind. But um, yeah, he certainly had a clear picture that 3D was was going to be the thing. In a gaming history, a lot of people look at like you know the wireframe games, Battlezone, and uh, stuff like that, and then they go into like later titles like uh, Wolfenstein and Doom and see that. Do you think? Um, Games like Castle Master have been a bit overlooked in in that sense. I, I think they probably have, and I think that's more because they weren't the high speed, frantic experience that the gamers in those in those days really were were, were looking for. Uh, it was much more puzzle thought based uh, because it was at a lower pace. Uh, much more effort was put into designing complex puzzles that were difficult to solve, uh, and at the time people wanted Twitch fast action things so it, it sort of had a niche and it had a, a bit of a following but no it didn't take off or, or get noticed quite as much as the as the faster paced games that's for sure and uh, amazingly it reminds me of something actually like like mist or one of the kind of later titles which um was um kind of a like pre-rendered slideshow one where this was in a, a full environment you could go around um yeah it was quite groundbreaking castle master yeah, I think I think Castle Master in particular was was um, a leap forward for incentive as well because of the complexity of the puzzles involved. Uh, Ian sort of honed his his skills, and brought on other people, um, and and took ideas from other other areas that made it much more of a a complex puzzle experience. Well, in um, 1988. Darkside came out, and that was the um, the sequel to Driller. What are your memories of working on that project then? What's kind of the story behind that game? That, for me, was more of a, a, a small iteration over over Driller. In fact, if I remember rightly, most of of what happened between Driller and Darkside was just Ian working with the tools he already had. I don't think there was a great deal of, of change in the in the engine. We had new graphics, and and we had. Um, new surround and things like that and uh, and so on but it was it was largely a a proof of the fact that this idea of separating the game design and the game programming was a, a valuable one because in developing dark side ian was more or less able just to take what he had and develop a new game on it without without involving chris at all chris or, or steven and you had Total Eclipse, obviously, that was um, around the same time too. I mean, if, any memories of that game? Yeah, I think what probably happened there, if, if I remember rightly, is that while Ian was working on Darkseid, which was, a, as I say, uh, a, a natural progression from, from Driller, there was more work going on in the background on the engine to support the next sequence of games, which was um, Castle Master and, and uh, Total Eclipse. So that's where the, the the development time was going, on making sure that the engine was ready for the next generation, while just taking advantage of what we already had in Freescape version 1.0, if you like, um, for for Darkside. Because you know Total Eclipse as well. I mean, being a 1988 video game, that was really. I mean, you could consider that by today's standards as a first-person shooter. I mean, it's got all the elements there. Yeah, that was the first one we did 
Freescape where we had a prize as well, if I remember rightly. The, the trip to Egypt to see the total the total eclipse. Oh, wow. Do you remember did, who, did, did uh, someone win that? Anybody win <laughs> that? <laughs> they did. They did. I can't remember the name, unfortunately, but yeah, someone won that. And now, now that I remember that aspect of it, that's almost certainly what what led Ian to uh, to developing Total Eclipse as a game concept, knowing that there was an upcoming solar eclipse that he could he could use as a marketing tool. Well, Castle Master was an absolutely kind of stunning title. Why do you think it was so successful and um, probably the most famous title out of all of these? As I say, I think it was probably um, the fact that Ian's uh, familiarity with the system and how to get the most out of it sort of developed over time. He he worked out how to be, he was always incredibly devious with his puzzles anyway, but once he worked out what you could and couldn't do with the engine and how you could you could uh, do silly little things like make, make uh, shapes almost touch but not um, and and leave these little gaps that are imperceptible from a distance. But if you get to the right place and crouch down, you can get through there. He learned all these tricks and that just made his ability to develop devious puzzles um, far, far better. And that, that's why you end up with a game that's just much more difficult to complete and, uh, and much more fun. And it had all those like cool little elements like uh, catapults and stuff that really made it feel real, you know. Yeah, that that was really good fun trying to to get recognisable objects out of such a limited palette of tools. But yeah, it, it was really good to to see some of these things come together and recognise them. One thing that uh, stood out to me that still stands out today was uh, Matt Furness's um, soundtrack, which was just absolutely amazing and. Uh, that tune uh, was so atmospheric. Um, I, I absolutely love it. I still still play it today. What was it like when you guys first heard that music? Yeah, I remember when, when it was first delivered and, and we, we loaded it up on the Amiga. The, the sound of the bells at the very start was just, uh, it was mind-blowing. It, it, it sounded great, absolutely fantastic. So clean and crisp. Uh, it sounded great on the Amiga, as you'd expect, because that's what it was, that's what it was uh, authored on. Uh, but my memory of that of it is actually getting it to work so well on the Atari ST because it's it had much more limited sound capabilities than uh, than the uh, the Amiga, but we managed to create something that would play roughly four channels and make it sound not too dissimilar to the Amiga, which was really really quite uh, uh, a pleasing achievement. Was there a prize with um, Castle Master as well? I don't think there was. I think we only did. I, I don't recall one. I know we did one for um, for Total Eclipse, but I don't remember there being one for the Castle Master. And these exotic holidays are not cheap. I'm doing for every game. <laughs> no, no, they're not. <laughs> I'm sure you can find a castle to go to quite cheap. <laughs> well, obviously, you got, you got the uh, sequel in, in the same year as well, remarkably, both in 1990, um, Castle Master 2, The Crypt. What, was that kind of in development at the same time or straight after then? How did that quick release schedule work? And how did um, how did you want to improve on the original game? So I think, again, that was very much like the Driller to Dark Side evolution. That was just Ian sitting in his office with lots of reams of paper and, and pencils and sketching out the game and developing it in the tools he had with no input from or no no minimal input from the developers. Because I think at, the, at that time, the developers, all of us were uh, switching focus to Superscape. So really, Castle Master 2 was the swan song of the Freescape engine and, and Ian could do that in, in in isolation because the tools were already well honed and ready and ready for him to use. 
Well, I, I thought that uh, the ST Adventure Creator was a really interesting title. And like, how, how was that developed? But also, how did that kind of lead to incentive wanting to uh, create game creation programs? So the, the ST Adventure Creator actually was a follow-up to, well, not a follow-up, it was a port of the GAC, the Graphic Adventure Creator, which was on the Amstrad and the Spectrum, I think the Commodore as well. Um, but that was developed by uh, an incredibly smart guy called Sean Ellis. Pr- about the same time we were developing uh, Freescape, but he, he didn't work for Incentive at the time. He worked um, as a freelancer and we just published it for him. But uh, some interesting anecdotes around the uh, the GAC in particular. It was written on a, Z- on a on an Amstrad CPC in Z80. But being a, a university student um, and, and operating out of his dorm, uh, Sean didn't have the funds to even buy something as rudimentary as, a, as an assembler. So um, everything was written in, uh, hand-coded in hex. Uh, he, he knew, and even more recently, when I had a chance to speak to him before he unfortunately passed uh, a couple of years ago, he still knew most of the Z80 assembly code in hex form and could and could actually code things by, by typing in hex values, which was just phenomenal. <laughs> That's impressive. Yeah. Well, 3D Construction Kit obviously went on to be a, a massive hit for incentive. Um, and I remember so much hype around that product when it was released. What was the idea behind that then? And um, how was that developed into a product for the end user? So I think we, we had the idea to put the, the, the Freescape engine out for people to play with fairly early on, maybe not at the very, very start, but sort of certainly after a couple of games had, had proven to be successful and, and, and had an audience, we s- sort of had the idea that it would be good at some point to take the tools that we've put together that Ian uses on a daily basis to to create the games and let other people get creative and have fun. So once we decided that the uh, the Freescape engine itself in its various forms had, had run its course, uh, it would make sense then to package it up into something that uh, that we could put out and let other people let people have some fun. So so it was myself and, and another programmer worked on on the uh, the development of it and a, a designer we had on on board called Eugene Messina, a very very creative guy had a, a real eye for for user interface design and, and user experience. Uh, he he came up with the the way that the engine the the, the the application would work, how you'd interact with it, what it would look like and feel like, and and we just we just coded up the tools we already had. Um, we developed some of them into into more friendly forms. So when placing objects, for example, in the original tools, Ian would have to type in coordinates. So we added some tools to be able to select an object and move it around with arrow keys and and controls on the screen just to make it more friendly. And the the FCL behavior language. Ian would type that in in hex. He'd have a, a reference sheet next to him of, of all the different opcodes and what they did, and he'd type it in in hex, uh, whereas obviously not particularly useful for the average user. So we, we developed a, a very simple assembler that could take human-readable commands and compile them down to the FCL bytecodes. Uh, Package that all up, and, and luckily we found something that people enjoy playing with. I, I think it was really important, that interface, because, um, you know, 3D was something that I always wanted to pick up, and there were lots of uh, 3D model, modeling programs on the Amiga and stuff, but um, it just had that kind of 
pick up and play vibe and it was always something that you'd go back to when you felt uh, overwhelmed with other games and systems. It, w- it was certainly something that we were aiming for was that anybody, literally anybody could pick it up and just do something, even if you don't create a game just build something but people were building their houses people were building um, cars and all sorts of things with it just for fun uh, and that was great and it, it meant that we we'd got the balance just right that people could pick it up and it made sense and it wasn't too complicated it wasn't too onerous it didn't it didn't take a huge learning curve and i think we followed that through most of our our, our 3d and, and our engineering in in as we moved into superscape the vrt itself was supremely usable and i still say now i was speaking to ian very recently and i said even now i would stand the vrt version 5 alongside unity Mm. in terms of usability because it was just it was just so friendly i I was wondering as well like with stuff like uh, maybe draw distance and stuff i always remember there was a bit of a limit with what you could build and you know you'd always have these grand designs and then um, mm. kind of your, your your memory limitation and stuff would uh, limit you. Um, uh, uh, w- w- did that change depending on which system you used? Sure. We, we tried to make sure that we could take advantage of whatever was available. So if you were on an Amiga, for example, you had much more freedom. And moreover, you had much more um, uh, granularity. So the, the regions that you built within were a cubic area. Um, and on the 8-bit machines, that was cut up into, I think it was 128 by 128 um, segments. And that's what you had to build in. You could you could get no more granular than that. And there was no rotation or anything. Whereas on the uh, 16-bit machines, we increased the resolution of that to to much more um, granular uh, grids within that, within that region. So you could build things with a little bit more detail. And having the extra memory uh, meant that you could go a little bit more uh, overboard on adding detail, bearing in mind that it would obviously slow things down, but uh, gave you a little bit more freedom, certainly. So no 3D construction kit, I, I mainly see it today, talked about as an Amiga and a Commodore 64 product mainly. That seems to be like the main audience that remember it. But I actually do have a vivid memory of IT class in school. I think one of my teachers showing me it on uh, an Acorn Archimedes. Yeah. Um, and was that ever a consideration, the kind of ed- educational market? Because it's quite interesting that it came out on the Acorn as well. Uh, not so much for Freescape, but certainly when we moved into Superscape, non-gaming applications were a consideration and were our main focus, actually. Uh, we moved out of gaming dramatically from there. But no, I think um, I don't think we actually targeted education or anything. We just basically put something out that people could play with, and it was fun to see all the different things people did with it. Well, it was also known as um, Virtual Reality Studio when it was released in the USA, which, uh, you know, for 1991, I'd never heard the term virtual reality. Obviously, it was everywhere a couple of years later and even more so today. Why the name change then and where did that come from? I can't remember for sure whether it was an Ian idea or a Domark idea, but Domark, our publisher, typically recommended different naming for the US market that would fit their, their demographics. So I suspect it was probably something that Domark um, came up with what were the kind of differences between the eight and sixteen bit, and um, which port did you did you prefer, or, or you kind of thought was the best version? So, so the main differences really were the available resolution you had in in the three D space. Um, apart from that, we tried we tried to keep them, or we had to. We were really forced to keep them pretty similar um, in terms of feature set. There may be some some 
uh, additional bits and pieces that were available in the 16-bit ones, but it was mainly about additional resolution and space to build. In terms of favourite, I think my favourite was probably the Amiga one, just because I've just got fond memories of that machine. It looked great. It felt great. Um, the, the machine itself was, was just fun. Well, today, if we want to find out how to use a product, generally the way I do it is um, type it into YouTube and watch a video tutorial. Uh, but back then, usually you got a massive manual that was like the size of a, a phone book for the more complex programs. But you actually did a, um, a VHS explainer tape um, and a newsletter as well, explaining how to use a software and helping users get to grips with it. I mean, where did that idea come from and, and how important was that? Was it received well by the, the users? That was another Ian idea, definitely. And I think uh, I think he was the, the the star of the show. I think it was well received. I think people did uh, enjoy the the fact that they could see someone using it, and maybe that took away a little bit of the fear factor because three D back then was a a buzzword, uh, a buzzword that would put a lot of people off. While some people would find it exciting and and futuristic, others would find it scary. So I think having someone just talk you through, literally talk you through how simple it is to use was was quite a, uh, a smart move. Uh, and it certainly seemed to be well received. People gave very, very positive feedback for the for the video and how it helped them. There, there were two example games with it and uh, they were pretty impressive themselves. But I, I was wondering how important it was to help people, you know, customize it, uh, create their own identity. And I knew that you could do an overlay and uh, change some of the buttons around but also in the uh, second version i think you could add sound effects and uh, your own music as well yeah so having the ability to to do your own overlay your own image file that you you created for the da- for the dashboard effectively of the game was absolutely critical because what we wanted to create ultimately was a a tool that allowed people to create their own games not just a, a modified version of of driller or dark side or anything like that they, we wanted them to come up with the idea and make it their own and being able to put their own stamp on the front if you like with their own graphics their own design their own layout being able to move where the controls were and how they responded where the um, uh, gui feedback elements were on the screen and how they worked and tie that into the FCL so you could print things in different places and update scores and so on, made it so uh, so flexible and so customizable that people were able to create games that, although were recognizably Freescape because of the nature of the 3D window in the middle, were at the same time unique to them and their own, their own uh, take on, on that particular genre. Well, I remember a lot of people getting very excited about it. And I even remember seeing a, a cover disc, I think, on Amiga format that obviously helped awareness of uh, 3D construction, cat, I imagine. Do you remember anything that kind of impressed you? And were you um, getting a lot of games and creations that people have made sent in on disc regularly? Yeah, I, th- I think we, we did. We did certainly get some uh, games sent in to us to, to review or to, to, to show off, if you like. People, people like showing off what they were creating. And we, we were very keen to get that and, and see what people were using. I don't have any particular memories of any particular games, and, and that's a bit bit bad, really, in a way. But we were focused very much on on Superscape at the time. So while we hadn't abandoned Freescape, we were still keeping an eye on what was going on in the community and and enjoying seeing it being uh, being used in the various ways it was. Uh, we were very focused on uh, on the next level. 
I think there is a website as well, isn't there, where you can download a lot of these games, Ravi, if people want to... Uh, yeah, them. 3dconstructionkit.co.uk, and that has a lot of games for all the different systems, actually. And uh, there's one that I've always wanted to do, which would have been like a kind of Western a Western town. I thought that that would have been a cool idea. Yeah, I think we, we did have some other ideas for um, for other games, but I think Ian ch- took the decision that he had, he had done its done its job. It was time to move on to something else, and you didn't want to um, keep pushing it too hard and... And, and people get fed up with seeing freescape games and, and the, the the name sort of gets tarnished so we decided that was the right place to stop well 3d construction kit 2 obviously that came out um in 1992 and you dropped the 8-bit platforms by then so it was um amiga atari st and pc uh, and that had a load of improvements as well i mean what kind of new features did you put in there and and how difficult were they to implement was that like a reason that the 8-bit support was dropped it was it was absolutely a reason the eight bit support was dropped. There, there was no way we could continue improving the engine uh, in meaningful ways within the constraints of those eight bit platforms, but we could on the sixteen bit. So we introduced things like um, transparency. I think we had some rotational capabilities in there. We had to we had to change fundamentally the way the engine worked in some ways because transparency introduces its own problems. Uh, you have to make sure that you draw each surface in the right order. Um, backface culling and all these other things are, are become much more relevant with uh, with a, sim- a simple solid, well, relatively simple solid uh, engine. You just draw the po- polygons back back to front, and they overdraw one another, and that's fine. Um, anything that should be hidden is hidden by the fact that it's it's drawn over. With transparency, that's no longer um, a luxury you can take advantage of. So you had to be able to sort things effectively, come up with some very complex sorting algorithms to to efficiently sort the polygons uh, and make sure that the transparent ones were drawn in the right order so that you could see through the, the stipple pattern to the to the objects behind. I, I was thinking, you know, the Freescape Engine games would be uh, fantastic on a like modern VR system. I saw a Dactyl Nightmare ended up. Uh, getting on one and uh, i just think those retro kind of worlds are like really suited to it i'd love to love to play castle master on a you know quest or something <laughs> it'd be amazing yeah i agree i think i think getting getting the the puzzles and the the gameplay and bring it in into a, a more immersive environment would be really good fun i think uh ian ian did a great job of drawing you into the games in particular in castle master uh with some of the characters and and and, and the narrative uh, I think being able to bring that into something where you're literally immersed would be great fun. Are you a virtual reality enthusiast these days then? I am, very much, yeah. Well, I say very much. I'm, I'm Oculus Quest, Quest 2. Um, mm. I, I, I sidestepped the whole tethered VR thing. I know it's much more powerful. You've got a big, powerful gaming PC and you get some great VR, but I just couldn't, I couldn't see myself being tied to a machine. Yeah, I've got the um, I've got an Oculus, which is my most used VR headset. But I've also got a PlayStation VR. But oh, it took me about half an hour to plug all the cables into it the first time I set it up. I think. Yeah, I think wireless is definitely the way to go there. Um, yeah. But one thing I know you did recently, you you um, you actually and you currently are working on a a, a retro makes challenge. So um, tell us about this because this sounds really exciting. Yeah, so this this came from some of the work I did. Uh, a couple of years ago on on game jams i got into a mode where i wanted to tinker with games again having been out of the industry for a little while uh, and did a few game jams i found doing producing games under a tight schedule 
to to a, a, a an externally imposed guideline was quite fun. Um, I decided I wanted to do something a little bit more, so uh, I came up with the idea of doing pushing myself to do a game a month uh, for 12 months and see what I could come up with. But as I started planning it out, I found it f- very challenging to come up with 12 uh, different unique games. So this was just at the time when the Spectrum was entering its 40th anniversary uh, and there was a lot of press about that. So it occurred to me maybe the thing to do would be rather than coming up with 12 games to pick 12 classics from the uh, Spectrum era and remake them in modern in a modern way. So using modern techniques, but trying to remain faithful to the, the fun original game uh, that people loved so much back in those days. So I'm doing that now. I'm in month five of, of 12 at the moment, and I've just about managed to deliver each one. Uh, literally the last one, Splat, I delivered two minutes before midnight on the 31st. So, uh, <laughs> nice. it, was, it was a close one, but yeah. Which other titles have you done then so far? So I did Confusion to begin with, which was a, an incentive published title. What did I follow up, follow up with? I've done Confusion, High Noon, Splat, and I'm currently doing Death Chase. Nice. There'll be like 12 in total then, will there? Yes, yeah. Right, cool. And Drillers among them, actually. How have you found um, the process of doing them then? Have you um, had to play the originals then and kind of update the style and kind of... I imagine retaining kind of the gameplay and feel of the originals is a bit of a challenge, is it? It is, yeah. And and that's half the fun. So each time time the, the month starts, I spend a couple of days at the very start of it just playing the game on an emulator. And it's it's really... It takes you back, definitely takes you back to playing those games. And, and it's it opens your eyes just to how creative the games designers and, and programmers were back in those days, developing such engaging games, such fun games to play on such limited systems with such uh, limited resources. It, it meant they had to become really creative in how they designed the game and how they made the game feel and, and, and play because the graphics can't be photorealistic. The sound can't be awesome. So uh, you had to engage the player purely in gameplay. So uh, hats off to the developers of those games. The, the, the creativity they engaged in was, was just phenomenal. I was just wondering, have you uh, got your hands on a Spectrum Next yet? I'm, I'm, I missed out on the first round, but I'm, I'm fully in on the, on the second Kickstarter. I'm just waiting, it, waiting for it to, to arrive, which will be sometime late next year thanks to the chip shortages but uh, yeah i'm looking forward to that i shall certainly be playing with that and, and seeing what i can make yeah I'm, I'm in line with you as well and it'll be worth the wait though I've, I've had a lot of play you know play expo and that kind of thing before so it's a really interesting machine i mean do you think you'll make some titles for that then is that kind of your plan i'd like to yeah i'd like to get back to doing some z80 i've been practicing a little bit on some emulators and i've heard driller runs really nicely on it as well if you if you clock it up to its uh, its 25 megahertz highest fantastic well, what are you up to these days professionally then uh i've jumped around a little bit so i spent 19 years of my career at, at uh, incentive and superscape so that was that was more than half of my working life in one place which was phenomenal i then jumped around a little bit did some work on tv and film special effects jumped back into vr on the on the retail side so the commercial side rather than the consumer side did some other bits and pieces. Recently got back together with Ian Andrew, uh, where we did some uh, prototyping and, and released a, a mobile game just to, to see what the market was like these days. And now I'm freelancing, doing 
what takes my fancy on a day-to-day basis just having fun coding things mostly games but uh, whatever comes along well, Paul, it's incredible to hear that the, uh, the passion for gaming still burns deep. Um, if people want to check out the, the retro makes that you've done so far, wh- where can they get them from? So everything I do is, is centred on my personal site, which is indigobeetle.co.uk. Um, that's where I blog about them, not as frequently as I'd like to, but uh, as, as much as I'm able to. And, and they can all be linked from there, and they're all hosted on itch, but the, the, the personal site will link through to those games if you want to have a play. Brilliant. Well, I'll put that link in our show notes. Everyone should uh, definitely go and check it out. Um, and, you know, can't wait to see what you do with the, the rest of it as well. Good luck with that project. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing some of your memories. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Paul. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Really, really good to dig back to some of those uh, good old times. Mm-hmm.